I grew up in a, an era where there were no Playstations or Xboxes. The first computer I ever got was a Spectrum 48K. Now, most of us, I don't know, this watch has got way more than 48K out of it. We used to play horoscope skiing and Daley Thompson's Decathlon. And some of you were the Spectrum people, some of you were the Commodore 64 people, yeah. But, uh, but before the age of Xboxes and, 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 and video games and Playstations, we had board games, Old-fashioned board games. I wonder what the favourite board game or game was in your family. Most families had one where you brought it out when there were visitors around or there were children to be preoccupied. Maybe it was Twister, which is good fun, but as you get older, it's not so much fun because uh, you could do yourself an injury. The hip could go out and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it's like a workout in the gym playing Twister as you get older. Maybe it was Cluedo. I remember, you remember Cluedo? You had to figure out, you were a detective, you had to figure out who carried out the murder. Was it Professor Plum in the study with the iron pipe? And, uh, or maybe you were more intellectual than that. Maybe it was Trivial Pursuits or Scrabble. And, uh, and there was always that argument about whether it was a real word or not a real word. Or, and, uh, or maybe it was Connect Four or Jenga. In our house when we were growing up, it was Monopoly. I loved Monopoly, yeah? There was something about Monopoly that you built up your property empire. You were a... Uh, an investment mogul, you, you built up your portfolio. And some people play games for fun, some are a little bit more competitive, I'll not say what I fell into, but, but I love buying certain streets, especially the blue ones, Mayfair and Park Avenue. And you would put your houses, the little green houses and the little red hotels on it, and you prayed that your opponent would land on them because you would bankrupt them and you would win the game and... Uh, uh, and, 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 and you would revel in your victory for a few moments. And then after the game was over and you'd celebrated your victory, it would all go back in the box. All of your brilliance and genius would be forgotten and it would all go back in the box. And I was thinking, you know, isn't life a bit like that? We spend our lives building things, building careers, building families, building reputations, building businesses, building, building, building. We pour our lives, we, 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 we put up uh, just, uh, we, we, we put up uh, our, our, our best front and we, we want to put up our best reputation and we want to, to, to show everybody how great we are and, and we buy clothes and we buy stuff and we buy TVs and we buy houses and we buy cars and, and we accumulate all this stuff and then in the end when we die... It all goes back in the box. All the stuff that we poured our lives into, all the stuff that we invested in, all the stuff that we got glory from, it all goes back in the box. Maybe there's more to life than accumulation. One book I was reading recently called it Stuffocation, that we're a culture of stuffocation. We're suffocating with stuff. The biggest problem for most of us when it comes to birthdays or Christmas is not what to buy. It's what do you buy somebody who's already got everything. And yet we consume and we buy and we purchase. And apart from this church, the other church in the area is Nick. We've got a pile of churches in this area which will be packed this afternoon with people buying more stuff. Stuff they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. That's what we do. We invest our lives in stuff. 
Is that what we were made for? I want to put it to you this morning that maybe we were created for more than stuff. Maybe we were created for more than just accumulation and, and purchasing and, 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 and building a career. And maybe, maybe God uniquely and specifically purposed you for something more than working for 60 years, spending 5, 10 years in retirement, enjoying your 60 years of work, and then leaving this planet. Maybe there's more to it than that. We saw in our story of Moses this morning how God shows up to Moses. Moses is in the wilderness, he's in the desert, he's a shepherd and he sees a bush burning but the bush isn't being consumed and he hears a voice and the voice is the voice of God and if Moses hadn't turned aside he wouldn't have recognized the voice of God. It was a bush burning in the wilderness and and, and in the wilderness in, in those days in the desert bushes burned all the time and yet God got his attention because he stopped and turned aside and I think some of us God is trying to get our attention. There's things that are around us and God is trying to speak to us through them but we're so busy, we're so preoccupied and God said if you would only stop long enough I would speak to you I would speak future I would speak hope I would speak life into you so Moses stops and 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 God says I want you to go back I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to say set my people free let my people go and Moses in that this point gets a PhD in excuses he has excuse-itis he 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 starts going well I, well, I don't I, I can't do this and I don't know about and I can't do this and, and he's he, he's he spent about 10 minutes articulately telling God that he can't speak and uh, he, he, he you know and why all the reasons why he can't do what God is asking him to do and you know I, I have realized I'm really good at coming up with excuses when God when God asks me to do something that I already want to do I have no problem obeying you know, if God called me to be a beach missionary in Hawaii, I don't need to pray about that. Okay, I am there, Lord. You provide. I don't need to pray about that, God. If you, if you, if you want me to do something I want to do, that's fine. What about when God asks you to do something you don't want to do? That's when you get excuseitis. That's when you start going, well, well, what about this and what about this and I don't know about this and I can't do this and 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 and, and then you can spiritualize it and I need to pray about it. You know, you're asked, would you, would you consider serving in church? Well, I need to pray about it. You know what that really means? I need time to think of an excuse because you've caught me off guard right now. And I don't want to just say no because that looks really unspiritual. So I'll pray about it. And I'll, the Lord will tell me no. And, and we have excuses. It's not the right time. I've tried that before, which is what most churches do when you ask them for change. We tried that before and it didn't work in 1876. We, we need to, you know, I can't, I can't give money to this because I've stuff I need to buy. The kids are too young. I'm too old. Maybe in three months, surely somebody else will do it. And Moses asked God a question. He says, who am I? Who am I that I should go and set these people free? I'm just Moses. And I know that feeling of inadequacy, insecurity and inferiority. I be- Believe me, I do. I've wrestled with it for years. Who am I? I'm just a wee boy who grew up off Jervis Street. <laughs> who am I? And that's the question Moses asks. But then he asks another question in chapter 3. And that's a much better question. First of all, he asks, who am I? Then he says, who are you? Who are you? If I go to Pharaoh and he says, who sent me? Who will I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am who I am. And I'd be like, I am what? Finish the sentence. I am 
what? I am whatever you need. I am whatever you're going to need on that journey. I am your provider. I am your sustainer. I am your strength. I am your warrior. I am your shield. I am whatever you need me to be. I am Yahweh. And so Moses asks two questions. Who am I and who are you? And then we get to chapter 4 and God asks Moses a question. And you know, God, or, or when God or Jesus asks a question in the Bible, it's not because they don't know the answer. It's because they're trying to get us to express something to them that's on our hearts. Look at Exodus chapter 4 verse 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? And that's my first question this morning. And I've only got two. What is in your hand? And Moses looked down at what was in his hand. And it was just a shepherd's staff. It was a stick. The same stick he had picked up every morning for 40 years as he went out to look after the sheep. It was a stick, it was a staff that he used to lean on when he was standing there watching the sheep. He had used it to guide the sheep, direct the sheep. He had used it when wild animals came along to fight them off, to fight off the lions and the bears and the wolves. He'd used it to protect his flock. It was simply a tool of his trade. There was nothing special about it. It was just a dead, lifeless, old stick. But he had probably grown attached to it because we get attached to things, don't we? It was a tool of his trade. For 40 years, this was his stick. Remember the movie, this will show the age of some of us. Remember that movie with Tom Hanks, Castaway? Remember the volleyball he made friends with? What did he call it? Wilson. And we grew so attached to Wilson, didn't we? You remember when Wilson was gone? It was a very emotional moment. I wonder, did Moses get attached to the stick? Called it Rod, you know? <laughs> this is Rod. He's out in the wilderness. There's nobody else there apart from sheep and him and Rod. Moses and Rod out in the wilderness. I wonder, did he get attached to it? But we're going to see later that as he surrendered this lifeless stick to God, God was able to do something with it. This was the only thing he had in his hand. It didn't look like much. It doesn't look like much. And if I were to say to you, what's in your hand this morning? You might say, well, I've got my Bible in my hand. I've got my phone in my hand. I'm, praying, I'm playing Angry Birds right now. If you're going to play, that makes you go to hell if you do that in church. Um, but what I mean is, what is in your hand? What has God given you in terms of resources, time, money, treasure, abilities, gifts, skills, passions, houses, children, Family, cars, jobs, careers. What has God given you? Notice God didn't ask what's not in your hand. He didn't ask what's in somebody else's hand. He said, what's in your hand? Because I know with me, I'm always much more aware of what I don't have than what I do have. I'm much more aware of my inadequacies and my lack and what other people have than what I do have. And I look at people who are much more gifted than I am, who have much more money than I have, who have much higher paying jobs than I have, who are 
much more articulate than I have, who lead bigger churches than I do, who, who seem to be much more confident than I am, who, 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 who are much better with people than I am, who don't seem to be as messed up as I am, who seem to have a picture-perfect life in a social media world where we post the highlights. And I think, you know what, God, I know how you could use them. I mean, look at them. They're so gifted. They're so articulate. They're so perfect. They're so handsome. They're so beautiful. They seem to have it all. They've got a big house. They're confident. They've got a great job. God, look at what's in their hand. And God said, no, what have you got in your hand? And you go, it's just ordinary. It's not a big deal. It's not much. What's in your hand? And we think God couldn't really use us. But God doesn't ask what's in your neighbor's hand, what's not in your hand. He says, what's in your hand? And I want to put it to you this morning that every person here has got something in their hand. Every person here has got a gift, a talent, an ability, a resource. Something God is saying, that's what I've put in your hand. And you might think, well, this is very ordinary. It's, it's not very special. And God says, look, this was just a stick. It was just a simple bit of wood. But if you will give me your ordinary thing, watch what I can do with it. Maybe for you, it's, you're creative. Maybe you enjoy sharing your faith with others. Maybe you hate sharing your faith with others. But you're really good at spending time with people and listening to them. Maybe for you, it's practical you love cutting grass you love helping people you're always going around the neighbors particularly elderly neighbors seeing if they want their grass cut if you can help them out maybe for you it's generosity some of you have got a gift of generosity that's a fantastic gift some of you it's looking after children some of you it's raising your children some of you are brilliant parents for some of you it is 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 listening to people who are who are going through a difficult time. Maybe it's communication skills, maybe it's computer skills, maybe it's IT skills, maybe it's administration skills. Maybe you're really good with carpentry or electricity, maybe you can fix cars. Maybe you're good at encouraging others when they're down, praying for people, babysitting. If you're good at that, let us know. Um, making tea or coffee. Cleaning. Again, if you're good at that, let us know. Um, this, is, this is just a whole sermon, just really about us getting our house cleaned. And, uh, cut, uh, yeah, we've got a grass cutter, that's all right. Um, painting. You know, the list could go on and on. You know, when we come to church, sometimes I think we over-spiritualize gifts. We think, well, I can't play music. I mean, like this amazing band that we had this morning. And I couldn't stand up there and speak and... I mean, praying for people, you know, I can hardly pray myself at home, so how could I pray for people? And we over-spiritualize everything. Could you make a cup of coffee? Could you go and say hello to somebody sitting on their own? Could you stand at the door with one or two other people and shake people's hand as they come in? Could you volunteer one Sunday a month to help with the kids? You see, we emulate the platform, and yet this is not where it's at. In the kingdom of God. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And when God looks down, he doesn't say, wow, look at him on the platform. He's so impressive. He says, wow, look at those people behind the scenes who are loving those kids, serving those kids, teaching those kids about Jesus, making cups of tea, hoovering the carpet, making coffee, cutting the grass. 
we get it all the wrong way around because we have created this celebrity culture. We have created this, this reality where, where the people on camera, the people up front, the people, there's Christian celebrity pastors out there who they make reality shows about now in the States. There's this whole, co- and God says, that is not the way my kingdom works. My kingdom is not about the most beautiful and the most gifted and the most talented. It is about ordinary people with ordinary gifts surrendering them to me and seeing what I can do through them. As small as insignificant as it seems, what is in your hand? And the second question, and the last question God asks is this. Will you give it to me? Will you give it to me? Look at verses 3 and 4. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Then Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it and I'm not surprised. And the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And Moses said, are you crazy God? Moses reached out and took hold of That was the message version. Moses reached out, took hold of the snake and turned it and it turned back into a staff into his hand. God says to Moses, Moses, will you throw it down? And what he's really saying is, will you surrender what's in your hand to me? Will you let go of what you're holding on to? As insignificant as it seems, will you give it to me? Will you lay it down? And I know this sounds simple, but as I began to think about it, I've just found a pound on the floor, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um... (laughs) That'll go into the gift day. Eh? Um, it belongs to one of the poor kids. You throw the staff on the floor, you get a pound, eh? It's well worth it, folks. But what did Moses' staff represent? Well, it represented his livelihood, didn't it? It was a shepherd's staff. It represented his job. And the livestock that he looked after and the money that that brought him. So his staff really represented his livelihood. It was just a staff, but it represented his job. It also represented his security. If he was out there in the wilderness and somebody attacked or something attacked, it was his only means of defense. I wonder where we put our security. Do we put our security in our bank balance or do we put it in God? Because any place that we put our security that is not on God is misplaced security. And the other thing it represented, and actually I've heard many sermons in this passage and I've never heard this mentioned. This staff represented his past. And here's why. Why was Moses in the wilderness? Because 40 years before, he had tried to do things his own way. He had tried to set his people free his way and he had failed miserably. He had killed an Egyptian and he had had to go on the run. He was banished into the wilderness. And so every time he looked at this stuff, he was never meant to be a shepherd. He was meant to be the prince of Egypt. And so this staff, this stick represented his greatest failure. It represented his greatest weakness. It represented that thing that he did those years ago that he was ashamed of that had totally made the bottom drop out of his world, it represented his past shame and his past regrets. And God says, I want you to throw it in the ground. And I really felt for some of you today, 
There are some things from the past that you're carrying around with you. Regret, shame, things you have done, things that you did that hurt people or things that have hurt you. But particularly, I think some of the things that you did that maybe hurt somebody. In relationships, maybe you did something that you're ashamed of. Maybe you're ashamed of before God. And God is saying, you know what? You've been holding on to this thing for far too long. And you've been looking at it and you've been carrying it every day. And and, and I want you to drop it. I want you to throw it on the ground. I want you to get rid of it. So Moses does that. He obeys what God tells him to do. And that's when the fun starts. Look at verse 20 with me. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. This used to be Moses' staff. Now it's a staff of God. When he is willing to surrender it, it is no longer his. Yes, he still has it in his hand. But ultimately, he knows now it belongs to God. It looks exactly the same. It's not glowing. It's not got some supernatural light coming out of it. It's just a bit of wood. But it is no longer his. It belongs to God. And as we follow Moses through his journey, we see God using the staff again and again, the simple piece of wood to do miraculous things. Exodus chapter 7. The Lord says to Moses, take the staff, stretch it over the waters of Egypt, and they turn to blood, and he did it. Exodus chapter 8, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with the staff over the streams, and make frogs come out over the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 9, Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. It brought a plague of locusts. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow by the day and night, and in the morning... The wind had brought locusts. Just that staff. Wouldn't that be cool to have a staff like that? I wonder what you'd do with it. You know? Imagine if you could do that. What would you do with it if you could just stretch it out and make things happen? And they get to the Red Sea. And the Egyptians are behind them, as we saw this morning in that dramatic presentation. And the, the horses are coming behind them, and the, the chariots of fire moment. And, and they get to the sea, and they don't know how to cross, and they're about to be slaughtered. And what does Moses do? He stretches out the staff. And as he stretches out to the staff, the left side of the sea says to the right side of the sea, we've got to get apart for a little while. We've got to take a break. And the, the sea opens, and the people walk through. And when he lets down the staff... The waters come back together again. And they're free and they're delivered. And when we use the simple thing that God has put in our hand, it brings freedom and deliverance to people who are oppressed. People who are enslaved, people who are in bondage, people who have the enemy on their backs. When we will give the simple thing, the little thing, the ordinary thing we have, it can bring them freedom. Then we go a little bit later. That was chapter 14. Chapter 17, the people in the desert are thirsty. They start grumbling. Imagine God's people grumbling, hard to believe. But they start grumbling. They cry out, why have you brought us into the desert to die? And God says, strike the rock with your staff and water comes gushing out of it. Do you know there's people thirsty out there? 
And you know what I've discovered about thirsty people? They will drink anything. Don't we see that in some of the countries of the world where there's no water, where there's drought? They drink dirty water and end up getting all sorts of diseases. Because people who are thirsty will drink anything. And we have a culture that is desperately thirsty and they're drinking from the sewers of hell to try and quench their thirst. And God is saying, if you will give what's in your hand, if it's insignificant and simple and stupid as it might seem to you, I can quench people's thirst with it. I can satisfy their deepest longings with it, but I need you to give what's in your hand. And the third thing is, they go into a battle against the Amalekites. And as long as Moses' hand is raised with the staff in it, we read that here, I will stand up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hand, the Israelites were winning. There's some battles that people are losing that you can help them win through the gifts that God has given you. There are some addictions, some struggles, some things that people cannot get past, some sicknesses, some depression, some hopelessness, some poverty, some abuse, that if you will give God what is in your hand, they can get victory over Those things. This ordinary staff, this insignificant piece of wood, when he was willing to surrender it to God, it was dead when he surrendered it, but it came to life when he was willing to give it away. And I think it's the same with all of us. God is saying, you know what? If you hold on to it, that's all it is. If you hold on to your hand, it's just a dead, lifeless piece of wood. If you hold on to it, that's it. But if you will give it to me, I will put life into it. I will be able to do incredible, miraculous things through it. I will change lives. I will change communities. I will change your workplace. I will change your school. I will change everything. But first of all, you've got to be willing to lay it down. You've got to be willing to surrender it. Because that which is not surrendered to me still belongs to you and you're responsible for it. But if you give it to me, I'm responsible for it and I can do so much more with it than you could ever could do with it. Will you surrender it? And I am so thankful for people in this church who lay down their lives, who lay down their finances, who lay down their resources, who lay down their time, who serve so faithfully week in and week out. There are people who are in this church sacrifice and give and serve and love and pray week after week, day after day. And I am so thankful. I want to say to you today, I'm so, so grateful for you. But then there's others this morning who are holding on to what's in their hand. You know, our... I remember when Elijah was two or three, you know, and all kids are like this. You buy them something and then you try to take it off them and they go, no, it's mine. Don't they? And they don't realize actually everything they have came from you, but they think it's theirs. And we do the same, don't we? We cling on to stuff as if it's all ours. And God said, hey, where did that come from originally? Where did the resources come from? Where did the money come from? Where did the ability to do that job come from? Where did the job come from? Remember that interview that you went to and it was an absolute disaster and you thought you would never get the job and you got it? Do you think that was really you? You weren't that good. (laughs) That's resonating with some of you, too many of you. 
and we cling on to it. And you know what? If we cling on to it, I, I, there's something in this story, just this morning as I was reading it, I realized this. That every staff has got a snake in it. That every staff has got a snake in it. And what does a snake represent in the Bible? The devil, evil, deception. Every good thing not surrendered to God has the potential to become a snake. Your money not surrendered to God can become a snake. Your career not to surrender to God can become a snake. Even your family not surrendered to God can become a snake. It can become a place of deception. It can become a place that comes back to bite you. Inside every stick, there's a snake. And there's potential for evil, selfishness, greed, and self-serving. And if you hold on to it, it will bite you, it will crush you, and it will poison you. And God says to Moses... Pick it up. I'm nearly done. Take it by the tail. Now, I'm no snake expert. I try to stay away from them. Many years ago, I was in America camping, and we woke up to a snake outside the tent, and I did the 100-meter dash faster than Usain Bolt. But I know with snakes, you do not pick them up by the tail. If you pick them up by the tail, they will curl around because the dangerous part is ahead, and they will bite you. And God says, pick it up by the most dangerous part. And I can imagine Moses going, really, God? And God says, yeah, pick it up by the tail. Because this thing is about trust and faith. And the thing that you fear most is the thing that you need to take hold of. For some of you, the thing that you fear most is the thing this morning God has saying, take hold of. Stepping up, serving, giving, surrendering to him. The thing that you fear most is the thing that you need to take hold of. And once you take hold of it, if you take it by the tail, he'll look after the dangerous part. The truth is, it's all his anyway. It's all his. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. You know, I, I stayed in a hotel this week in Cork. And it was all right. But I didn't decorate it. I didn't fix it up. I didn't go out into the town and buy new wallpaper and new paint and spend all my money on it. Why? It's just a hotel room. I'm not staying there. It's not my permanent residence. And yet we pour our lives into things that are temporary, that are not our permanent residence. Because this life is not eternal on this planet, but there is an eternal life beyond this. And the Bible says, do not store up treasures in earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You see, money is not a money issue. Money is a heart issue, and a heart issue is a spiritual issue. I have been, had to deal with that over the years because I struggled with money and giving. And God says, you know what? That's a hard issue. It's a spiritual issue. And if we hold on to it, that's all we have. But if we will surrender it to him, 
God says, now I can use it. Now I can take it. And now I can take you if you will surrender your life, if you will surrender your family, if you will surrender your future, if you will surrender your career, if you will surrender your plans, if you will surrender your relationships. You know, some people who are dating, it might look good, but he's a snake. That was for free. Don't know if it was for somebody here or the podcast, but I felt prompted to say that. He looks good, but he's a snake. Throw him down. Give it to God and give your life. You know what? Here's one coin. I found it. This is all. Um, this is your life. You have one coin. How are you going to spend it? Are you going to spend it in trivial pursuits and things that are temporary? Or are you going to invest it in things that really matter? Because you've only got one, one coin. What are you going to buy with it? Trinkets and toys are things that outlast. And when you get to the kingdom, the father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I got something this morning that I'm very proud of. I got a trophy. Yeah. Dad, you're my hero. I know. I bought it for myself. (laughs) Hey, look at that, huh? Yeah, I might get in the Porter Down Times with that, I think. But you know, many of you won't know this, but in my teens, trophies were a big part of my life. I did martial arts, I did karate and kung fu, and I actually became pretty good at it, believe it or not. I became Northern Ireland champion, so don't mess with me. (laughs) It's like riding a bike, you never forget it. But actually, I used to live for competitions and trophies. My parents would tell you, five days a week I would train. Somebody, some of you saw on Instagram recently the photos of me doing the splits in random places. That's why sometimes I speak quite high. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I've got a son. Um, but uh, I used to live for trophies. I used to live for competitions. And there was nothing I loved more than going to a competition and coming home with a trophy. And when I got those trophies, I used to, they went on the mantelpiece at home and I would look at them and I'd dust them and I'd polish them. Then over a number of years as I grew older, they moved from the mantelpiece in the living room to my bedroom because my parents got sick of looking at them. And they were in my bedroom, I know. And and, and they were in my bedroom and they were on my shelf in my bedroom. And then when I moved out, they went into a box somewhere. And then over years they went into the attic. And then at one stage they went from the attic into the bin. The thing that I had poured my life into for years that was most important, that was number one in me, the trophies that I had poured everything into are now in a bin somewhere, in a skip somewhere, in a waste field somewhere. I don't want to pour my life into plastic trophies that don't last. I want to pour my life into things that are eternal and do last. And you know what my trophy is now? Or my trophies are? It's lives transformed by Jesus Christ. That's it. That's, that's what lasts. I, I drove to Cork on Tuesday. I drove back on Wednesday. It's a long way. To preach one service in Cork. But three people gave their lives to Jesus. That's a trophy worth living for. 
that's a trophy worth investing your life for. Because when I get to heaven, those three people are going to be standing there. I'll not understand a word to say because they're from Cork. I had the funniest moment, let me, I know I'm just waffling, but I uh, got to the hotel and I thought, uh, the whole way down I'm thinking, will these people in this church be able to understand me? Well, I need an interpreter. And I uh, get to the hotel and the girl says, I'll not do a quirk accent because I can't do it. says, are you here for the concert? I said, no, what concert is it? She went, uh-huh. <laughs> I said, no, no, what, what, what concert is it? She said, uh-huh. <laughs> I said, no, sorry, what concert is it? She said, uh-huh. And I went, Oh, it's aha. Take on me, you remember? And I thought this is going to be a bad preach tonight if, if the person behind the counter and I are having. But do you know what? I preached the word. There's a church in Cork and 1,200 people go to it every week. On a Tuesday night, they have an extra service for their overflow. There were 250, 260 people there on a Tuesday night. And three people gave their lives to Jesus who were there for the first time. That's my trophy. That's not going to go in the bin. That's not going to get put in a box. That's a trophy that will last. And as we come to this gift day, I simply, with no huge fanfare or emotion or manipulation, I just want to say to you, please, if you can give, give. And if you can't give, don't. But whatever you give, whether it's money, time, you know what, we can all give something. Maybe you don't have any money this morning, but you can't sign up to help after the summer with the kids. You can sign up to serve. But if you can give financially this morning, give. We are building something here that we want it to be eternal. We want it to produce eternal trophies.